Hi, this is Victor Agreta Jr. And on this episode of Coders, we're going to be talking to Brett Terpstra. Brett is a developer, and we're going to be talking about APIs, or Application Programming Interfaces. So stay tuned right after this. Telecom Careers, the number one global telecom and wireless job board. Telecomcareers.com. Comscope, thinking beyond today's technology to help you make the best decision for your network and your business. Hi, everybody. It's Victor Agreta. And in this week's episode of Coders, we are going to be talking to Brett Terpstra, and he is an independent developer. We're going to talk about APIs this week. So, Brett, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. So, first of all, what are some of the projects, what are some of the things that you created as a developer? Going far, how far back? Um, well, what's out there right now that people can, can use? Uh, I have Mark II, which is the obviously second version of my Markdown Previewer Marked. And uh, I have a Stretch Link, which is, um, it watches your clipboard and expands any shortened links. And I have... BrettTerpshire.com, which is a crazy conglomeration of web experiments. And, uh, and then I have Heck Yes Markdown, which has a, a sister site that is more obscene. Um, and that is, uh, it's a site where you can, you can punch in a URL for any web page and it will, with an API, uh, it will convert it into Markdown uh, with readability to remove all the ads and stuff. So that's been used in multiple other projects that other people have put out. Uh, there's a app on iOS called Browsey that uses it to uh, let you, you have an extension in Safari that you can markdownify your pages with. Uh, but yeah, um, there's probably more than I can really count. NVAlt is out there, uh, but we're working on a new commercial version of that. So there's a lot going on. That's a lot. Well, and you know, a lot of your tools tend to revolve around creating content, uh, consuming content, uh, and, and not just content in sort of like blog posts and whatnot, but it's going to be used for documentation. I know NVAlt in particular was used for all kinds of things from script writing to technical documentation. Right. Um, and then and you know, every, every version of Marked has focused on a different type of writing. Um, like every release, like it does fountain for screenwriters it has uh, text analysis. It'll give you reading time and readability fog index scores for long form writers. It does automatic link validation in the background for blog posts. So you can tell if you put a bad link in, it'll highlight markup errors, things like that. So yeah, I, writing is, even though I don't do as much writing as I was, would like to, I, uh, I focus very heavily on writing tools. Very cool. Um, so, you know, I want to go back in time a little bit first, because uh, the way that we met you, or and I say we being TUAW, uh, was partly through David Chartier, but also, I think, um, well, in Download Squad, it was actually, I think, the, the first time that I, I knew about you. And you well, had some... I actually never got to post on Download Squad. Did you not? That was... I got, I, got, I got a contract there at the same time I got the 2 contract, and then just focused on 2 and... Well... <laughs> good. That was your good better than, you know, you, you yeah. got on the right pony in that case. Um, but, you know, you had this thing called Mood Blast at the time. So tell us a little bit about what Mood Blast does or did. Uh, it was my first, I had just gotten uh, into 
OS 10 and Macs in general. And I wanted to explore the power of, it started as a simple Apple script and then it turned into a Cocoa app over time. Um, but basically you would punch in a status update. This is in the days when Twitter hadn't won the game yet. So there was Twitter and Jaiku and services nobody even remembers. Um, and basically it would broadcast one status, one mood to every available social platform. Up there were at one point there were 12 different things they could update, including Facebook and stuff like that. And uh, and it developed a, uh, a syntax over time where you could use parentheses and and bang, you know, like you could type bang weather and it would put in your current location weather and everything, um, or bang iTunes and post a I'm listening to thing. Uh, but basically, it was just to uh, to flaunt the idea of DRY and let you. Um, but, you know, to that end, you ended up working with a number of, you work, you interface with these services using APIs, right? Which at that point, uh, you could still basically kludge by faking a login with curl and, uh, and then posting, but Facebook never really gave us a good rest API that you could access from shell scripts. So that was always a kludge. And that was ultimately, I think, the death of Mood Blast when Facebook became so prevalent and, uh, and they didn't offer an easy way to update from third-party services. It just became like, what's the point of Mood Blast if it can't do Facebook? Right. There, was a, there was a Facebook group for a while called Let Mood Blast Post to Facebook. It got nowhere, though. Yeah, well, I mean, IFTTT, like a lot of services have tried to move into that area, but just Facebook has been very controlling. In, From a marketing standpoint, I applaud them from, I mean, the reason Twitter succeeded was their API. They, what they offered via the API and then later rescinded. But at that point, the API and the third party development that went on around Twitter was what set them apart from everybody else. They would have been the same as Jaiku if they hadn't gotten the massive third third party developer support that they did. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with that. And, and it was weird uh, to see Facebook sort of blow up, but then again, it was, you know, APIs are things that sometimes only a certain subset of people care about, right? Well, they're always something that only a certain subset care about. But if you think about the fact that things like Tweety and Tweetbot would never have existed were it not for the API. Right. I mean, it, pe people care about the tools, not necessarily what's behind the tools, but the API enables the tools. Yeah. And so backing up a little bit, let's, uh, let's talk about APIs. When we, you and I were talking about this episode, uh, you asked me, well, do you want to talk about REST APIs? Do you want to talk about platform APIs? We've talked about on this show a few times, uh, iOS and Android development and whatnot. And of course, those are platform APIs, and that's a little bit different. With, uh, with what we look at here at RCR, a lot of times we are talking about networks. And so, you know, really REST APIs for networks are one of the biggest things. And, uh, and it's still something to this day that's a, a pain point, I think, for a lot of developers to sort of create services that are able to uh, send and receive information or data in very fast, you know, in a, in a very efficient manner 
because users demand that when they tap on something, it show up instantly, right? And, and whatever that they're doing has to have so little latency and be very efficient. So tell us a little bit, just, just kind of give us a broad definition of REST API in general. Well, uh, a RESTful state transfer is kind of a, well, it's stateless, essentially. And it's something that exposes the functionality of the app, whether it's a web app or a, a, a native app. It exposes functionality that the app itself can use, like what you're talking about, where, where the UE is extremely responsive. It's because instead of processing everything in modular format on that page, it's calling its own API in the background asynchronously and then providing data to itself. But then those can also be converted into the kind of REST API URLs that uh, web developers are, are familiar with, like Twitter and others, where you can then access that application's um, functionality without having to go through any kind of user interface. It's you know, just purely network calls. And then you can, you can perform actions that you would perform in the app through you know, scripts or through uh, your, own, your own app that then sources data from this other app and processes data through another app. And these REST APIs have become extremely prevalent. I mean, if you go to Mashape, M-A-S-H-A-P-E, I don't know how they pronounce it, but if you go there, you can find APIs for everything, anything you wanted to online. And then services like IFTTT, you know, those are all API calls. So I think APIs, you could safely say, run the internet. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, conversation I've been having with people recently is the fact that because of, largely because of the iPhone, but, you know, a Android and, and just the prevalence now, the proliferation of smartphones, what we've seen is that big monolithic networks like AT&T and Verizon have started to create APIs and provide access to developers. Whereas 10, 15 years ago, if you wanted that level of network access, you had to have high level meetings. You had to, you know, have mm -hmm. thousands of dollars in your pocket. I mean, it was not a simple process of tapping into that, right? Yeah, a great example of that is weather data. It used to be 10 years ago when Mood Blast started, to get an actual weather data in XML with a SOAP interface would cost you thousands of dollars a month. And I happened to have a friend at, um, I think it was Weather Underground. One of the, he, he provided me with kind of a secondhand feed for free forever, which was you know the only way that I could have possibly included that functionality. But now with Dark Sky, that weather data, is, it's better. And it's free, you know, for like for people who are scripting, obviously, if you want yep. to use it commercially, there are prices, but it, it's nothing like it used to be. Data has become currency in and of itself. So, yeah, things have changed. Yeah, which is also interesting, right? And that raises some issues as well, because there's also, uh, as that's happened, it's like with great power comes great responsibility, right? And so there is a lot of data out there. And it's one of those things that I think consumers maybe are a little con becoming a little concerned about is like, what am I sharing? What am I not sharing? And can you talk a little bit to the aspects of security when dealing with APIs? Yeah, uh, security is a major concern. And we've seen a huge shift toward um, like uh, dual layer encryption and, uh, and authentication. 
Whereas it used to be, you would just send a plain text password and a username in a REST call, and you would have access to all of that. And now you have to have every user generate a token and, you know, and then uh, encode that with your own API key and send it in. And it does provide a relatively secure way to make these uh, often plain text calls across the internet in a, in a way that is not, it, it, it's, oh, it avoids theft. You know, people can't just sniff out the call and then have your username and password uh, because of this extra layer of authentication. And then uh, you do overall see more and more uh, REST APIs moving to SSL encryption. Like they won't accept any post requests outside of an HTTPS call, uh, which is really the way it should always have been. Uh, the idea of making an unencrypted call with your username and password in it is um, it's a little scary that that ever was the norm. Uh, so uh, the APIs, the, the technologies that enables the APIs has progressed quickly to a point where the actual, like the, the um, usability of the API is now secure enough that I, I don't consider it uh, a risk. However, the amount of data that is available through the APIs, that's the user's fault. Ultimately, I mean, we give up privacy for convenience, but that has nothing to do with the API. If, if Facebook wants to know every possible detail about you and collect your answers to every BuzzFeed quiz um, and provide those personal details through their API, that's, that's not their fault. They have the data, they make it accessible. And you sign up, you create your Facebook app and yeah, you, you also have access to all that data, which is a great marketing tool. Security is kind of moot at that point because those people gave up that information and, and they click that I agree to your terms button <laughs> and uh, that nobody, nobody, we need a better, there are services that will summarize those contracts for you, but they're not prevalent. And I think there should be like a Chrome plugin that anytime you're on a terms of service page pops up a summary and says, here's the really bad things that you're agreeing to. But yeah, absolutely. Wasn't there a story this week, I think that came out about something that was in a, a EULA and Apple's, uh, I do not agree to your terms, that one. Yeah. I, I can't remember who wrote that now, but yeah, it was, it was basically someone actually did read it yep. and someone actually had a problem, a valid issue right. with what they were giving up uh, in the Apple TOC. Yeah. But you know, it, it is, like you said, it's, you balance that with the convenience of these services. Um, and, and Facebook in particular is a great example where people, I always find it funny that they post these things to say, no, you can't use my photographs. No, you can't, you know, they think that this kind of thing, it's like, that doesn't supersede the agreement. Yeah. That you yeah, it's not legally binding. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, um, but the fact is, is that, you know, we're at an age of in unprecedented interconnectedness. And so, you know, I mean, you've known me for a while. I'm, I'm a big advocate of radical transparency for better, or for worse. You know, um, if everybody was just more forthcoming with information in general, it, maybe some of these issues might not be as big issues as they, they are. Definitely wouldn't. Yeah. So, uh, but then, you know, you've got more innocuous type data. What well, you mentioned, Dark Sky, this is one of my favorite weather apps. Um, I, the design is beautiful, but more importantly, um, as with any good app, 
the design is gorgeous, but underneath the engineering is absolutely magnificent. And the way that they calculate sort of the, what your weather, very hyper-localized weather is going to be, is pretty phenomenal. And something that they added recently was the ability to send barometer data from iPhone 6 and 6 Plus, you know, that has a pressure sensor in it. Um, so w- what do you think about that? I mean, that's, that's pretty cool stuff, right? Well, here's, here's the beauty of dark sky in and of itself is an API and they have an app that builds on their API, but I don't know of any weather apps on the app store right now that don't use the dark sky API for their information. What they provided was the data, the raw data that you could punch in an area code and it would combine the local, you know, the weather stations and average everything and give that back to you more easily than you could imagine. And so there's really nobody that I know of other than very specific, like the Weather Underground app uses Weather Underground data, but all of the, the various like Weather Nerd and, and Dark Sky itself and uh, Horizon, they're all using the, the uh, Dark Sky API. Uh, Forecast.io was their initial like, gotcha. kind of uh, uh, front for the API. But yeah, I mean, it is there. I do agree that especially the newest version of Dark Sky, the app, is it's gorgeous. They did a great job of presenting the information. But Dark Sky itself is it's instant data for everybody, and that that's the kind of thing that the world, in general, uh, the internet world, needs more of. Like that kind of just easily accessible information that everyone can then model and use in their own way. And, and that's I a think- beautiful thing. It is exactly, and and you know that was another thing that I thought was cool about uh, Apple's not health kit. Uh, what was it? Research kit, yeah. right? So giving uh, researchers a way of pulling in data data that before would have required you know hand filled out surveys or a web form, and it was a very small subset of the overall group that they could have been sampling. Now, yeah. people who own an Apple Watch are still going to be a small set. It's going to grow over time, of course. But the fact is, is that that's a completely different mindset than someone who says, hmm, I want to be part of medical research, right? These are people who just bought the watch, but now they can opt into medical research. Yeah. And, you know, and of course, Apple's working really hard to explain like the privacy aspects of these things. Like you're not giving up whatever i mean it, Apple I, does better with transparency than most other companies absolutely of course even for them that's been a, a bit of a transformation you know yeah, because uh, everyone's used to proprietary data and kind of tricking users into giving up rights that's kind of, that's the norm right and we are seeing a shift in that as people are becoming more aware of the rights they've given up but yeah. the, the other beauty that ties into that of the apis is that if you have access to three different APIs of three different uh, like data sets, but correlating data sets, you can then blend the data from various sources to create your own kind of statistical conclusions. And having, having multiple sources of data, yeah, like taking, taking the API for Dark Sky and just presenting the information they're giving you directly is one thing, but then an app like Horizon, it's a calendar app, that, uh, that shows you the, the weather that will occur at the time the event you scheduled is. And like combining that data with other data adds you know, infinite possibilities at that point, which is, that's just an outstanding, the, the web changes when you have that kind of uh, uh, combining of data sources in ways that people haven't imagined yet. 
Well, and our understanding of the world around us changes, right? I mean, what mm-hmm. if you correlate, or what if you looked at heart rates versus barometer readings? I mean, these are this is data that <laughs> right. you put. You could do some Freakonomics stuff there too. Yeah. But, uh, but then the, the danger is when Google is able to correlate things like your location and your home temperature with things like your lifestyle choices and, and come up with very precise not always correct, but very precise determinations of who you are and what you're doing at any given time. And that's what scares people. And honestly, to this day, I don't believe that Google has done anything horrible with that data, but they have a, a time bomb. The amount of data they have on all of us that we don't actually have access to, there's no API for that, but they could put together some very scary um, uh, data sets for each individual person that's ever used Google. Right. So, yeah, I, that, I, that's the fear. Well, you know, but of course I would be happy if they would just quit serving me car advertisements before <laughs> YouTube videos uh, because I'm not buying a car in the next five years. So they should have a Hulu thing where you can be like, no, I'm not interested in this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But and uh, then collect that data. <laughs> of course. Exactly. Yeah. Well, th- but that, that brings us actually to something that's also a very hot topic here on RCR, which is the internet of things. And obviously the internet of things is, almost entirely, but there's a hardware component, but it's almost entirely reliant on APIs, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I assume you're talking about uh, like Nest thermostats and mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah. And, and we're going to see more and more connected devices that, yeah, I mean, there's really nothing but an API involved. Like the Nest API that just came out this last year, um, it, it provides developers with access to all kinds of information that you can actually make the nest do just about anything there are like automatic for your car can now trigger your nest so you can have it when you pull into the driveway it turns on you know your thermostat to a certain temperature and then sets it away when you leave things like that and it's that same kind of combining data uh combining apis to perform new functions and that's i'm i'm in love with that i'm a huge automation guy like my apple watch can turn my office lights on and off and then it can uh, set my Nest using IFTTT, and then my automatic can connect to my Apple Watch and my Nest and my lights and everything. I love that. That's so much fun. I just wish that the APIs didn't have a, a terms of service that said, yeah, we're going to record all of these co- correlating data sets. But uh, again, it's that trade-off between convenience and security, right. convenience and privacy. And that's that's going to be the major topic moving forward. Yeah. Yeah, and and how much willing, uh, how much consumers are willing to give up for that? Of course, I think that, like you said, we're we're sort of sliding into this, and people are enjoying conveniences like Nest. Um, of course, I'm going to have to ask you after the show how you got that hooked up. I've been trying to get the automatic, so when I pull in, it it turns the AC on, but I haven't quite got that yet. Answer IFTTT. IFTTT. Okay, I just haven't found the recipe yet. I have been logging all of my all of my trips, which I think is fantastic. And, and I love it, my automatic. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, just things like that make it uh, make life a little more convenient. And well, being able to walk out of a store in a huge parking lot and ask your watch for walking directions to your car. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm an idiot. I don't remember where things are. <laughs> but you know, they never talked about this on Star Trek. You know, they never talked about the APIs, but actually they did. You know, that was what was interesting was that if you look at it now, um, 
some of those episodes, even the, the classic episodes, but a lot of the Next Generation episodes, I went back recently and watched almost all of the, uh, the Next Generation. And there were a number of episodes that actually dealt with trying to interface and trying to establish protocols between two different systems. Yeah. And I found that really fascinating. And then they would, you know, they would poke in and they'd find, okay, this does this and this does that. And well, then and that, that's hacking, you know, like, well, yeah, we, the, the history of no electronics. Yeah. Like <laughs> that kind of hacking has always been there. The API is what makes that easy. It's what facilitates it. So you don't have to figure out that, you know, this byte correlates with that bit. And it just says, you know, here's a way to send and receive data from this instrument. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, the, the, I think that that, uh, that process was why the API came to be. Absolutely. It, and, and you would think that in what was it? Tw- 20. When did, I don't remember when the first uh, Starfleet uh, was, uh, was created, but I would hope that by that point, APIs were just a given yeah. on all hardware because combining like a transporter with uh, what do they call the the thing you could ask for Earl Grey tea and it would just like, oh the uh, the uh, yeah the, uh, the the materializer or whatever yeah something the, like that to be able to combine those two technologies just imagine the fun you could have <laughs> oh yeah I saw Multiplicity um, <laughs> not a great movie but the same idea well and it just got me thinking that the aliens in Independence Day must have had the best open API ever because man he got into that system in no time with using Apple talk no less <laughs> I don't recall the Apple talk uh, part, part of that but uh, I think they cut that from the, from the final part where he pulled down the chooser and you know he was doing all this stuff on the original Jurassic Park uh, when she was in uh, to the this is Unix part you know, and she was looking at these X visual visualizations of all of the data. And yeah, it's th- those are like internal APIs. You know, they're not they're they're not rest APIs that you can access through a right. web call, but they are APIs nonetheless. Uh, you know, and and the iPhone, every bit of iOS that communicates with, you know, your heart rate and your your uh, geographic data and stuff, there's an API internally that then the code base can then interact with that hardware. So yeah, I mean, APIs are how the modern world works. Yeah, so um, so in your experience, what are some of the pitfalls that you've discovered in, in working with REST APIs? What are some of the things that developers should be on the lookout for? Um, well, a security authentication. Um, and there are a lot of APIs that don't require login at all. But if you are dealing with, say, Twitter, or Facebook, where you are accessing personal data, preparing that security. When you are the person making the API, you need to provide a way to to handle like multi-level authentication and token, and and uh, and actually provide a secure way for you to provide data to your users. Um, and I guess other than that, just really, you have to plan ahead. You have to figure out your routing. And you, okay, the first step is to always use a version number in your API URL. Like you say, like API slash V1 slash V2, because your API is going to have to change in the future. You know it is. And it's way easier to deprecate an API if the actual URL changes without changing all of the calls that people have already implemented. So it gives you a way to kind of, well, version 
the API. And then beyond that, planning out uh, intelligent query strings or paths that call the data that you want to provide for a specific uh, request. If, you, if it gets too disorganized, my, my app, um, uh, heck yes, Markdown, has, it uses query parameters for defining all the, the functions, whether you want readability, whether it should output HTML or Markdown, et cetera. And that turned into a mess fast because I didn't plan ahead. And I just ended up with all these um, different parameters that didn't necessarily from like a, a semantic standpoint, they didn't combine. You couldn't predict that the readability query was going to have the same kind of verb uh, agreement as the markdown uh, call. And it, it's, it's a mess. You, you have to look up every call because there's no predictability to it. And that's the kind of thing that I learned. You have to plan ahead. You have to really, you have to make it intuitive uh, for it to be really usable. So versioning, intuition, and, uh, and security, I guess, would be my top three focuses. It doesn't matter what you program it in. Node is really good for, for, uh, for uh, server-side APIs, but you can do a lot with like an Angular uh, path, like a router in Angular. You can create pretty great uh, kind of middle layers, mid-layer APIs. And yeah, I mean, it does, you can do it with anything. You can do it in PHP. You know, it's, um, you can do it in Objective-C. It's uh, that that is less important than actually the planning of the system. Flickr did a good job with that. Flickr was the first API I can remember that really thought ahead and uh, and made something. Well, and the Flickr API has been duplicated. Yeah. And uh, the Delicious API too. Yahoo was pretty pretty smart with their APIs in the early days. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, look at uh, you remember Yahoo Pipes, you know, yeah. and that that whole <laughs> that thing was, really was just. Yeah, right. Uh, well, but you, you know, you mentioned that things change. Of course, Yahoo Pipes is no longer around, but uh, Twitter is a great example of that. I mean, the, the API was once fantastic and now it's just sort of like that, right? Yeah. So you have to be aware of the fact that companies, uh, you know, if you don't own the company. Oh, that's the other thing is on the other end, you, 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 the, the end using the consumers of the API, if you build an app that relies on someone else's API, you will meet disaster eventually and you need to be prepared for it. You can't just put out an app like that and then expect it to just be fine forever. It right. won't. APIs change, APIs disappear, and that's, that's an eventuality that if you build an, an API-based application to consume other people's APIs, especially multiple APIs, be prepared for a lot of uh, like two in the morning, this API is down and therefore my app doesn't work anymore. You didn't do anything. You right. were using an API that was built to scale, but you're at the, the mercy of multiple other people's infrastructures. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that, that, I think, is an important lesson for people who are trying to build businesses, creating applications that need, they need to be aware of. Because first of all, you know, how do you fall back? How do you, how do you tell the user that like, this thing that you can't control is down? Because frankly, they don't give a crap. You know, it's like yeah. all they know is that when they hit the button, something weird. Like I said, it's, it's tools. They don't care how it works. They yeah. just they want the tool to work. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's see. Well, any other, any other advice that you would give to people who, or, or, or any specific tools that you think are really fantastic that maybe a lot of people don't know about? Well, I would, Moshape is definitely from uh, a discovery perspective to find the APIs that do the cool things you want to do. 
uh, MoShape is uh, it's kind of an online community and an easy way to register, test, and then subscribe to APIs. Um, there's a new app. I guess it's not new, but there's a new version. Uh, it's called Paw on Mac, which is an excellent tool for testing and experimenting and even writing code for API interactions. It's not cheap, but I, I picked up a copy and I'm really impressed with there. Uh, there have been many Mac apps for testing REST APIs. And if you, if you just type in REST API in the Mac App Store, you get a whole bunch of resources. Paw is just the most complete one I've seen. Um, other than that, uh, the command line and curl is a good friend. And uh, minus B of course. <laughs> to save cookies and things like that. Uh, yeah, it's uh, like my app Slogger. Have you ever seen that one? Mm -hmm. um, it logs from every social service and saves it into day one or markdown files. Mm -hmm. That is entirely API based and every plugin in that uses an API and it does it all from the command line. So yeah, Ruby, uh, Ruby and Python both provide great ways to kind of try out and test APIs. Almost every good API service has a library for Ruby and or Python that you can easily, you know, set up calls and, and retrieve information. So yeah, I guess those are my primary tools for discovery and usage. That's awesome. Uh, and one little curveball here at the end. Um, what do you think about open sourcing Swift? I, I don't know if I have an opinion on that. <laughs> I'm not, I, I don't think that open sourcing necessarily uh, benefits large projects like that. Uh, WebKit, it was great for a while. Apple did not keep up with the changes in the open source commun community. They were slow to incorporate features that we all, you know, like we had submitted bugs to WebKit. Mm -hmm. WebKit had fixed them and they didn't show up in Safari or in the, you know, uh, the SDK. And, and that was frustrating. And now uh, WebKit is being forked and, you know, Chrome has come up with their own Mm -hmm. private fork of web or a separate fork of WebKit, and the development streams have split and i don't i don't know if i think it's uh i don't think it i almost prefer a dedicated development base and radars you know like people can contribute bug reports right but it's maintaining a large-scale open source project that then creates production software it leads to a lot of pitfalls. And, you know, Linux obviously did an amazing job and amazing things happen because of the open source community. But I think there are stories on both sides of that. So I'm not ready to make, to make my own uh, opinionated call on that. But I, I would say there are benefits both ways. It's, it's going to be really interesting to see how this all plays out over the next few years. So, but, you know, it goes back to like what we were saying. The only constant is change. And so you have to be prepared for that either way, right? Yes, and more so than ever. Absolutely. All right. Well, I've been speaking with Brett Terpstra. You can find him on brettterpstra.com, and I'll have that in the show notes. Uh, Brett, thanks so much, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's fun. All right. And we will see you guys again on the next episode of Coders. Thanks. Coders is a production of RCR TV News. To reach Victor Agreta Jr. or to suggest a show topic for coders, you can reach him on Twitter at SuperPixels. For all the latest news on wireless code and the whole world of wireless, check out rcrwireless.com.